Romans 12 through 16 um, kind of function as a, as a, a unit, a, a section. Um, what you'll find if you kind of study the book of Romans holistically is that uh, Paul, uh, which, is, which is fairly common to what he does in some of his letters, he spends a good chunk of time at the beginning on doctrine, and then he transitions kind of midway through or towards, towards the end toward uh, application. And so that's kind of what we've, what we've said. Uh, thus far, we've looked at Romans 1 through 11 and seen a considerable amount of uh, doctrine, right? Romans chapter 1, we saw God's wrath against uh, Gentiles, unbelievers, non-religious people, uh, you know, coming against sins like idolatry and, and worship of, of other gods. Romans 2 was God's wrath against the nation of Israel. Uh, so religious people, people who claim to know God, claim to love God, but in reality they are maybe not trusting God or they're judging other people for not being as righteous as they are. Romans chapter 3, uh, we see that kind of everyone is, I mean, kind of the, the Comprehensive picture. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone stands condemned without excuse. But anyone can be saved if they trust in Jesus and, and the righteousness of Christ uh, is imputed to them through uh, believing in, in the gospel. That's Romans 3. Romans 4 looked at Abraham, Father Abraham, and kind of showed how Abraham was not saved by his works. He was not saved by his religion. He was not saved by his adherence to the law. He was saved by trusting in the mercy of God uh, as God saves sinners. Romans 5 was kind of a shift where Paul starts to talk about um, not, not necessarily the, uh, the, the act of saving sinners, like Romans kind of 1 through 4, but starts to talk about uh, the implications of and kind of the, the results of having been saved. And so he talks about how we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God. We're secure in our salvation. We can't lose our salvation because we never earned it in the first place. Romans 6 uh, answers a question that Paul is anticipating in his readers' minds, which is, if Paul's gospel is true that we're saved by grace, then what, then what is our motivation to ever obey God at all? Right? If we understand ourselves to be saved by our own righteousness, then we have this built-in motivation to try to be good. But if we're saved by grace, then what's stopping us from uh, just being completely, just, just you know, sinning without any uh, you know, brake pedal, essentially? And Paul explains that when God saves sinners, he doesn't just um, forgive their sin and make it to where they can go to heaven instead of hell, he also changes their nature. He resurrects them from the dead. Their old self has died, and their new self uh, has been raised from the, from the dead. And so the old self loved sin and hated God, but the new self that God gives us in the gospel loves God and hates sin. Romans 7, he talks about the Christian's relationship to the law. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer bound by the heavy burden that is the law. We're no longer enslaved by the law. Instead, we're under grace, this new master that we have as Christians. Romans 8 is probably like the, the, the quintessence of the whole book. Jesus has set us free. He's raised us from the dead. God has adopted us as his children. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He will keep us forever. There's nothing that we can ever do, nothing that could ever happen that will separate us from the love of God. Romans 9 through 11 deals with the nation of Israel, and it seems to be uh, tackling the, this, this, this question, right? This idea that uh, Paul, all of these promises that you have articulated in Romans 1 through 8 
how can they, what, what comfort can we as Christians have in them since we are, like, because there was a bunch of promises that God made to the nation of Israel in Genesis through Malachi, and it seems like your gospel, Paul, is saying that there are going to be some people in the nation of Israel who are not saved, who don't go to heaven. And so if God's promises to those Jewish people were not kept and realized, then how can we be sure that God is going to keep and realize his promises to us as believers? And so Romans 9 through 11 unpacks that question. And Paul kind of articulates that the promises of God made to the nation of Israel were never uh, intended to be, you know, to, to go indiscriminately to every single ethnically Jewish person simply because they are a citizen of the nation of Israel, that ever since the nation of Israel was founded, God has been choosing some and not others. Uh, Isaac instead of his brother Ishmael, and Jacob instead of his brother Esau. And really, it's, it's those who trust in Christ, those who trust in God and trust in the mercy of God. That's Romans 9. Romans 10 uh, is that God's grace, because of the gospel, is no longer available only to the nation of Israel, like it pretty much was in the Old Testament. Now, God's grace is available to anyone and everyone, Jew or Gentile, who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And then Romans 11, which is what we saw uh, last fall, uh, is that the God's promises to the nation of Israel are, are going to be kept, are going to be realized. And ultimately, one day, we can anticipate that God is going to bring all of those promises to fulfillment. He's going to save his nation and, and bring them into uh, his, his presence. That's Romans 1 through 11. A lot of doctrine. If you, if you read through Romans 1 through 11, you will find little to no imperative commands. Almost every sentence in the first 11 chapters has a subject and a predicate. It's an indicative statement. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's a statement of some sort of fact, doctrine, the sovereignty of God, holiness of God, judgment and wrath, grace of God, sufficiency of Christ, justification, sanctification, perseverance, glorification, right? A lot of indicative statements. Chapter 12 is a transition. It, it, for the rest of the book now, we're going to see a lot of imperative commands. Indicative statements characterize much of the first 11 chapters. Imperative commands categorize much of the last uh, five chapters, Romans 12 through, through 16. And again, that's fairly, fairly common in Paul's letters. Uh, we see that in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 uh, is a lot of doctrine. Ephesians 4 through 6 is a lot of application. Colossians 1 through 2 is a lot of doctrine. Colossians 3 through 4 is a lot of application. And so uh, Romans is, is similar, uh, similar to those. We've, we've you know, covered a lot of who God is and how we can be saved and reconciled to God. And now we're going to look at uh, how God wants us to respond. And Paul does it that way on purpose. He, he, he starts with the indicative statements and then moves to the imperative commands to make very clear the nature of the gospel and the reality of salvation by grace through faith as opposed to by works. It's almost as if he's saying, 
after 11 chapters, now that you have been sufficiently grounded in the reality of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ and how God has mercifully saved us from our sin and how there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or merit God's favor, but we can only receive it freely by trusting in God. Now that we've established that and we all uh, agree on that and there's no debate about that, now that we have that foundation... Now let's discuss how we as Christians are to live. How we are to relate to one another, how we are to relate to the world, how we are to relate to the government, right? We're going to see a lot of kind of concentric circles about how does a Christian deal with other believers? How does the Christian deal with people who won't forgive them? How does the Christian deal with people who uh, have different views on debatable, uh, you know, matters, different politics, different... How does the Christian deal with the government? What if the government's just? What if it's unjust? A lot of kind of how the Christian is to live in these various scenarios and circumstances are going to kind of play out in the next five chapters of of Romans. We're going to start today with just two verses, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, which kind of, uh, kind of, uh, are, you know, function as, uh, they, they set the stage for all of the commands and all of the scenarios that are going to, to follow, kind of a, a comprehensive, you know, overall general look at the Christian life that's going to inform and kind of uh, be the foundation for all of the other commands that are coming in the, in the following chapters. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time just kind of breaking it down word by word, clause by clause, phrase by phrase, to see what it means and, and uh, how it applies to our lives today. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to uh, gather together as a church and read your word and listen to your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would teach us, that you would work in our hearts, and that you would... um, conform them to the likeness of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Again, this is the first time that we've seen language like this in the book of Romans. Uh, This is the first kind of command that we're going to see, exhortation that we're going to see, more or less. And he starts by saying, I appeal to you. I'm, I'm urging you. I'm asking you. He's not saying, I demand uh, of you, brothers, or uh, I insist of you, uh, brothers, as if, as if he had some sort of unilateral dictator uh, authority, right? If you don't do what I'm about to say, I'm going to put you in prison. All right, Paul's kind of 
he, he's saying, that's not the kind of authority I have. I, 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 have, uh, I have authority. I have, I have binding authority as an apostle, as a mentor, as a pastor. Um, but it's an authority. It's not an authority to command and punish, but it's an authority to, to counsel. <coughs> One theologian puts it this way. He says, we, uh, as the people of God, we need a better understanding of the difference between the authority of command and the authority of counsel. Both types of authority possess the ability to make commands, conscience-binding injunctions, as in, you must do X, Y, and Z. Yet only those with the authority of command possess the power of enforcement. Those possessing the authority of counsel do not. For instance, God gives the state an enforcement mechanism. He calls it the sword. We're going to see that in Romans 13. He gives parents of young children an enforcement mechanism called the rod. We see that in the Old Testament. Uh, He also gives the whole congregation such a mechanism called the keys. We see that in Matthew 16. So the sword, the rod, and the keys allow their holder to enforce their commands. The state enforces the sword when it sends criminals to prison. The parent enforces the rod when it disciplines a child. The congregation enforces the keys when it excommunicates uh, a, a member. So some people, some institutions, have the authority of command. God has given them the authority of command. You can instruct, you can exhort, and you can punish. But others... He gives the authority of counsel. So you can still instruct and you can still exhort. You can give a conscience-binding command, but you can't enforce it. And so this would be, you know, parents whose children are grown-ups. You, know, you kind of have the authority of counsel, but not necessarily the authority of command anymore. Or friends or mentor, pastors have the authority of counsel, but not necessarily. Right, the church has this binding authority of command where the church as a collective institution can, can excommunicate someone, but a pastor can't. I'm a, a, you know, a regular person. So they can counsel, but not necessarily command. And so Paul is saying, that's the space I occupy, the authority of counsel. I can tell you what I think that you should do, uh, and I can tell you what God says that you should do, but I can't I'm not your parents. I can't, you know, put you in time out. I'm not the government. I can't put you in prison. I'm, a, I'm an apostle, and I'm a pastor, and I'm a mentor. I can exert. I can urge. I can, I can appeal to you. We see the same thing in the, the book of Philemon. Paul kind of teases it out more explicitly. In Philemon, he says, um, he says, realize, Philemon, that I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. So Philemon, uh, it's Paul writing to his friend Philemon, asking him to reconcile with Onesimus, a former slave of Philemon's who ran away from Philemon and met Paul. And so Paul is saying, I want you to reconcile with Onesimus. And he says, now I could exercise the authority of command if I wanted to. Later he explains why. He says, remember Philemon, you owe me your very self. So Paul is saying, I led you to Christ you would be going to hell if it weren't for me and my ministry telling you the gospel. So if I wanted to pull rank on you and make you reconcile with Onesimus, I could do it. But I'm not going to. He says, realize I'm bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I appeal to you for the sake of Onesimus, my child, my, my friend. So he says, I am active as an apostle. I am not going to 
take on, t- you know, take on more authority, more binding authority than I have. I'm going to leave that to the institutions that God has, in, has ordained, the church, the government, the family. But I am a pastor, I'm an apostle, so I'm going to appeal, I'm going to encourage, uh, and I'm not going to demand. Which I think is wise. I think, it's, I think, it's, I think Paul is wise to recognize that it's my job to declare the word of God to people. It's not my job to force them, to pin them to the mat and force them to obey it. It's not my job to hurt them or punish them if they don't obey it. God is going to enforce his, his word. God is going to enforce his laws. God is going to punish those who rebel against him. It's not my job to, to do that. And so the two extremes that we want to avoid, we want to avoid the, the one extreme of saying, either because of fear of man or because of indifference, we want to avoid the extreme that says, I'm not going to ever give anyone any counsel at all. Because we have to. As Christians, Hebrews 13 says to exhort one another, as long as it's called today, so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Colossians 3 says to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We as Christians have a responsibility, a command from God to exhort and instruct and admonish other Christians. If you see a fellow church member that is uh, in sin, or if you see uh, a fellow church member that needs to hear a word from you, you have a responsibility to, to instruct them and to exhort them and to, to help them and to counsel them. So we want to avoid the one extreme of indifference, abdication. But the other extreme is to say, Uh, not only am I going to give words of counsel and instruction and exhortation, but I'm also going to take it upon myself to enforce them and to, you know, punish someone if they don't do exactly as I say. That's God's job, not, not our job. So Paul says, I, I appeal to you, the church in Rome, Christians who are reading this letter centuries later, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, which could also be translated as because of the mercies of God or in view of God's mercy. So the the clause is inserted there as if to say the tone of my appeal, the the tone of my command, instruction appeal is the first clause, but then the the reason, the underlying foundation or motivation is is because of or, or in view of the mercy of, of God. The reason why I want you to do the thing that I'm about to ask you to do, the motivating factor that resides beneath it is because of, it's because you are continually living in view of the mercy of, of God. So whatever it is I'm about to ask you to do after this comma, the reason why I want you to do it is because of the mercy of God. And by the mercy of God, he's referring to the first 11 chapters of Romans, all of the mercy of God that he's just expounded on and explained, sovereignty of God, the person and work of Jesus, the grace of God, the fact that we can be saved from our sin if we trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to us, we can be secure and reconciled to God forever, right? Because of the mercies of God that I've just spent 11 chapters explaining, I'm about to ask you to do something because of it or to do something in view of it. He's saying the, the Christian life, when lived rightly, is a life that's lived by looking at, beholding, marveling at, 
gazing upon, being affected by the good news of the gospel, the truth of what Jesus has done for us, and then we live in light of of that. When Paul says, by the mercy of God or in view of God's mercy, he's saying that the, the, you know, the simplest definition of the Christian life is to believe the gospel and then to live in light of uh, or, or in reaction to the gospel. Because if you really believe the gospel, if you really believe that Jesus Christ God the Son, he became a man, he lived a perfect life in your place, he died a horrible death as a sacrifice in your place so that he could freely offer to you salvation that you don't deserve, all you have to do is receive it. If you really believe all of that, then you are going to respond in any given situation, you're going to respond as best as you can by doing what God commands you to do, by doing what Jesus would would do. If you really believe the gospel, you wouldn't want to do anything else. And so the Christian life is ultimately a life that's lived in view of the mercy of God. It's lived as a reaction to the mercy of God. So that's the tone. It's an appeal, not a demand. That's the motivation. It's uh, by living in view of uh, the mercy of God. And then we get to the actual uh, command, the actual instruction uh, itself. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the the conscience-binding command that I'm giving is that I want you to present your bodies to God as a holy and acceptable sacrifice. It's not, uh, here is, here's this thing I want you to do, this task I want you to accomplish, some portion of your resources that I want you to give to God. I want you to do that and then know that after you've done that, you're good to go. You can, you know, rest and kind of coast from that point forward. Paul says, I want you to present your body to God, which is another way of saying present the entirety of who you are. Everything that you are, everything that you have, the the entirety of, of everything that you are and have, I want you to give that to God as a living sacrifice, right? They hear the word sacrifice and they naturally, we naturally think, oh, if someone says I need to I need to borrow $1,000. I know it's going to be a sacrifice, but I need to borrow it. So I give them $1,000, and that was a sacrifice. It hurt. But then all of the rest of my money is still mine. They have the thing that I sacrificed to give to them, and then I have everything that's left. Or in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was an animal that they would slaughter and offer to God as a burnt offering. And, and so they don't have that animal. They can't eat it. They can't use it. You know, they're, they're, it, it costs them something. It was a sacrifice. But Paul is saying... That is not the entirety of what God wants as a sacrifice from his people. God wants the entirety of who... So not just that one animal, but every animal that you own and yourself. Not just that $1,000, but every single thing that you own and your, yourself. God wants all of that uh, to be offered to him, to be devoted to him. 
which is which is hard. It's it's that's not something that comes naturally to our human hearts. This idea of giving the entirety of who we are to someone to to God. In every other area of our life, we don't have that's not the uh, that's not the the way that it works, right? In every other area of our life, I give something, I get something, but everything that I didn't give is mine. Everything that you didn't get, you have no right to, right? Go to a restaurant, order a burger, costs $10, I give you $10, done, transaction complete. The restaurant can't call you up a month later and say, I want another $10 because of that burger you ate, right? You, you know, my, the bank can't say, thanks for paying your mortgage this month, but we want more money be, you know, like I gave you, like, everything I didn't give you is mine. Everything that I gave you is yours. But that's kind of, there's, there's clear lines of demarcation there. And that's not how it works with God. God doesn't say, I want you to give me 10% of your income, and I want you to give me two hours on Sunday morning, and then everything else is yours to do with what you, what you want. God says, you owe me every single thing. At your, your very life, you owe it to me. It's mine. I gave it to you. It's mine. I'm letting you borrow it. So, I, so everything of your, your life, your relationships, your money, your property, your resources, everything that you are, everything that you have belongs rightfully to God. And God wants us to give it to him in the sense of, you know, obeying him with how we use it, how we leverage it. The story of the, um, the parable of the hidden treasure, the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price, right? Uh, Matthew 13, it says, there was a man, he was walking in a field. He stumbled upon, he found a, a pearl of great price, a great treasure in the field, and so he buried it. And then he went to the guy who owns the field, And in his joy, he sells everything that he has and goes and buys that field. Pearl of great price. Guy finds a treasure, sells. He doesn't just go buy the field with some portion of his net worth. He sells everything that he has and then buys the field. Imagine you found a... Imagine driving home today. You saw, I don't know, what's a gold bars, I don't know. Imagine you see something in a field, and it's really valuable. So you're like, all right. So then you go home and you like look up on the, uh, I don't know, you go to the government website and you find out who owns the field, and you call that guy and you say, I want to buy this field, and he says, sure, but it costs a uh, billion dollars, whatever, right? It's, it's an extravagant amount of more money than you have, but you really want the field because you saw this priceless treasure in the field. So you strike a deal with this landowner where you give him everything that you have. All your money, all your possessions, all your property, all your resources, your house, your car, your job, your family. Every, you, you walk away from that transaction with the clothing on your back and a deed for this field that has this treasure in it. And you're happy, right? It says, with joy, he goes and sells everything. So you're, you're happy because you have this great treasure, but you have nothing else. And now imagine before you leave the building... 
the guy that just sold you the, the property says, come back, come back. Uh, I, all right, I get that was, was a tough negotiation. I took everything that you own, right? Your, your wife, your, every, every, every single thing that you have to your name. And the reality is I'm rich anyway. I don't really need all of your stuff. So how's about this? I'll give you everything back. You have the field. We have a, we have a transaction where I, I sold it to you for everything that you own, but you can have everything that you own back. But remember, it's mine. I own it all. You signed it all over to me. I can recall it from you anytime I want. I can ask or demand that you do, right, if I want you to give it away, it's mine. I can ask you to do that. If I want you to use it for a particular purpose, it's mine. I can ask you to do that because it's all mine. Everything that you understand to be yours is really mine, and I'm letting you borrow it. That's how our relationship is with God. You don't, you don't give God some portion of your time and money out of the, out of the you know, just the magnanimous, you know, out, out of the goodness of your heart, and then the rest is yours to do with what you want. If you're a Christian, then God owns everything that you are and everything that you have. It's all God's anyway. And if you're a Christian, God demands that you give it back to him in the sense that you do with it what he tells you to do with it. He'll let you hold on to it because he's kind, but it's his, and he gets the final say in what you do with it. That's what it means to present your body, to represent the entirety of who you are to God as a living sacrifice. And he uses the word sacrifice on purpose because if, if, if misunderstood, the word sacrifice uh, means the other thing. It means, okay, that's something that's mine, that I have autonomy over, that I can do whatever I want with, and as a sacrifice, I'll give it to God. And God is, all throughout the Old Testament, God says, that's not, what a sac- that's not how I understand and care about sacrifices. Hosea 6, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to be merciful. I want you to love your neighbor. 1 Samuel 15, I don't want your burnt offerings. I want you to obey me. Isaiah 1, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to do what is right. I want you to seek justice. I want you to defend the oppressed. Micah 6, I don't care about your offerings. Even if there are thousands of them stacked up, I don't care about them. I want you to be just. I want you to be merciful. I want you to be humble. Psalm 51, God doesn't care about sacrifices or offerings. He wants his people to have a heart that is broken and that is contrite before him, right? Paul knows his Old Testament and he's channeling it. He's saying the sacrifice that God wants is not a a goat. God has plenty of goats. The sacrifice that God wants is for his people to present themselves to him in obedience and faithfulness and holiness, the entirety of who they are, the entirety of everything that they have, that's the sacrifice that God wants. It's for us to recognize that everything that we have is his anyway, and so we give it to him in faithfulness. And then he says, this is your spiritual worship. We have a 
21st century America, we have a terribly deficient understanding of what worship is. Worship is not, you know, singing songs with an acoustic guitar. It's not a genre of music from the 90s on the radio. Wor- I mean, we, this, is, this is called a corporate worship service. So we are, this is wor- we are worshiping God. When we gather together and hear from his word and sing and pray and encourage one another, that is, that is worship, but that's not, worship is not less than what we're doing here, but it is far more. It, the, what we're doing here is not the entirety of what worship is. Worship in its truest, fullest, most comprehensive sense is a Christian who trusts in God, giving the entirety of who they are, the entirety of what they have, presenting their body right, to God as a living sacrifice, complete and total devotion to God. That's what worship is. That's how God has commanded us to worship him. Not show up to church for a couple of hours, give 10%, then the rest of your life is yours to do with what you want with it. True worship, spiritual worship, Worship that God wants is a Christian obeying God, giving his life to God, and living for the glory of God all the time. Not just Sunday morning, not just with the, that portion of his resources that he's going to, but, but all, everything that I have and everything that I am all the time given to God in obedience. That's what worship is in its truest and, and fullest sense. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, verse 2, he's going to kind of practically explain what we can do, what we can be doing to go about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And, and what he says is to don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. The Bible uses the word world in several different ways. Right? It can mean the physical world that God has created. It can mean the world of humanity that, that inhabits uh, the, the, the world, the, the planet Earth. Oftentimes, which is the case here, Oftentimes the word world refers to a, not, not the, the physical world, but the, the world system, right? The, 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 a system that is kind of, that's been brought about by and is being held up by and perpetuated by sinful people who are rebelling against God, they are indifferent to or they are hostile to God. And so the word world is this general reference to corruption and evil of humanity in their rebellion against God. Another, another uh, phrase that the Bible uses for it is to call it the, the spirit of this age. So the word world would be contrasted with, you know, this world marked by human rebellion contrasted with the kingdom of God marked by the reign of God. The spirit of this age Right where we're in right now, contrasted with the age to come, that's going to be marked by God's glorious reign over all things. And so Paul is saying, do not be conformed to 
This world of rebellion against God, do not be conformed to the spirit of this age marked by rebellion against God. Do not conform to that. Because, make no mistake, that is the easiest option. That is the the path of least resistance is to conform to the spirit of this age. The world wants people to conform to it. The world's power is, is wrapped up in, it's bound up in how many people conform to it. The more people conform to it, the more power it it has it snowballs and so the world the sp- the world is not indifferent as to whether or not you are going to conform to it it wants you to conform to it it needs you to conform to it it's like fuel for a fire that's that's the people conforming to the spirit of the age conforming to the world the world wants that and therefore if you're a human being living in the world, the easiest thing for you to do, the path of least resistance is going to be to conform to the world. It's going to be hard not to conform. It's going to be easy to conform. There's a theologian named Theo Hobson who, describing what he calls a full or complete or total moral reversal, He says, in order for a moral reversal to take place over time in a culture, three things have to happen. Uh, What was once condemned must be celebrated. What was once celebrated must be condemned. And then three, those who will not join in the celebration will themselves be condemned. Those three conditions have to be met in order for a moral reversal to to take place. That's exactly what the world is. That's, that, that's the strategy. That's the game plan. Of the, the, the starting point, we're, we're in the process of a full, complete, total moral reversal. If you kind of trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, the world is in the process, or at least, at least attempting to bring about a full moral reversal from what God initially intended. So God creates the world God reveals to his people what is good and right and true and beautiful. That's the starting point. And ever since then, the world's been trying to reverse it by celebrating what was once condemned, namely sin and rebellion against God, and by condemning what was once celebrated, namely obedience to God and faithfulness to God, and by condemning those who will not join in the celebration namely the people of God who trust in God, who cannot in good conscience celebrate sin and rebellion. So you see the tension that we're in, right? Like uh, as, as a Christian who lives in this world and the world actively wants us to conform to it, right? The world is screaming, conform to the world or be condemned by the world. You're canceled. You're dead to me. Right? Conform to the world or be condemned by the world. And Paul's saying, I get it. I get that that's your experience. I get that's the world you live in. I get that the world wants you to conform to it. I get that the path of least resistance is going to have you conform to the world, but it's not an option. Because the path of least resistance may be easy and convenient and comfortable in the moment, 
But more often than not, the path of least resistance goes to hell. Matthew 7, the path that leads to destruction is easy. It's downhill. The the gate to it is wide. But the, the way that leads to life hard. It's difficult. Very, the gate to it is narrow. Very few people find it. And if they do, there very few people are willing to walk down it because it's strenuous. It's hard. It's a, it's a pilgrim's progress, an uphill battle. Conformity to the world is easy. It's what happens by default if you go on autopilot, but it ends in destruction and wrath and judgment. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do the easy default thing of being conformed to the world. Instead, what I want you to do is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So do nothing, path of least resistance, conformity to the world, ends in destruction. And there, I mean, there are, there are Christians who... that. That's the path that they're on. There are people who identify as Christians that that is the path that they're on. Their lives, their behavior, their choices, their habits, their language, their finances, their sex life, their beliefs and their doctrine, right? There are people who identify as Christians that by everything that they do and say and believe appear to be indistinguishable from the world who play the part of a Christian on Sunday but live like a non-Christian during the rest of the week, or if you were to ask them what they believe, there would not be anything distinctively Christian about it. The most important thing is love, authenticity, open-mindedness, tolerance, acceptance. Conform to the world, the spirit of the age. That's why we... That's why we, in an, in an attempt to practice meaningful membership, this is why we interview and, and you know, meet with every prospective member of the church and ask them about their profession of faith and ask them what they believe about God and the gospel and ask them how Jesus has changed their life and ask them how their life is different now that they are a Christian than it otherwise would be if they were not a Christian. Because there are people who identify as Christians but don't live or believe anything that is distinctly Christian because they've conformed to the pattern of the world, the spirit of the age. Paul says, don't do that. Don't be conformed. Rather, be transformed. Which is kind of the whole point of Romans 6 through 7, right? I mentioned at the beginning. Paul spends Romans 1 through 5 talking about the grace of God and how we can receive the grace of God. Then he spends 6 and 7 saying, just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean that we can live like the world, live however we want to, to live. God's grace doesn't just forgive you, it changes you. It, it sanctifies you, it makes you more like Christ. When a person comes to faith in Christ, their old self dies, and they have a new life in Christ from that 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Speaking to this language right here of being transformed. The old is gone, the new has come. <coughs> and the way that the old is gone and that the new has come is through the renewal of your mind. The way that God transforms a person into a new creation, 
makes them a different person than they were is through renewing their, their mind. The Holy Spirit of God comes into their life and changes them. All of the old habits and patterns and desires that were conformed to this world, that were molded by the spirit of the age, the Holy Spirit starts to weaken them and, and kill them. And put them away. And the Holy Spirit gives new habits and new patterns and new desires in their place. The old affections are expelled and the new affections are planted and take root. And this happens primarily through what theologians call the ordinary means of grace. Practicing the spiritual disciplines. Reading your Bible. Spending time in prayer being a part of a church, becoming a member of the church, attending, giving, serving, silence and solitude, fasting and prayer, seeking wise counsel, being discipled by godly believers, discipling other people who are around you. As we practice the spiritual disciplines, the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us, as we practice them, it weakens and kills those old desires and habits that were conformed to the world, and it replaces them with new desires and habits that are transformed and and, and new. And the result is that we can test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? The result of having been transformed by the renewal of the mind through the ordinary means of grace, the result is that we can know what the will of God is and that we have this newfound desire to obey and walk in the, the, will, the, the will of God. The unbeliever person who's separated from God does not have the capacity to walk in the will of God because he doesn't know what the will of God is. He cannot discern it. It's only through being transformed and having your mind renewed that you can discern the will of God so that you can walk in the, the will of God, right? The believer who trusts in Christ can now discern the will of God as their old desires and affections are expelled and replaced with new ones, they now have the capacity and the ability to walk in and be faithful to the will of God. And so now they trust God and they obey God, not because they have to out of obligation, but because they want to, because they they get to. They They have new knowledge, new desires, and a new ability to walk with God and to glorify God. And that's what Paul is exhorting us. That's what he's urging us. That's what he's appealing to us to do. To live in view of the mercy of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, the person and work of Jesus. To live in view of the mercy of God, behold it, savor it, trust it, be affected by it, and then in response to the mercy of God, to present the entirety of who we are to God as a living sacrifice, right? Worshiping God through presenting ourselves to him. And then practically what that looks like, the shape that that takes is to not be conformed to the world, but instead, uh, as a follower of Jesus, whose first loyalty is to God and not to the world, instead of being conformed to the world, we're transformed by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, as God renews our mind through the ordinary means of, of grace. That's Romans 12, 1 through 2. Family of Christians, 
who believe the gospel together and who resolve and commit to living the Christian life together in light of the gospel for the glory of God. Romans 12, 1 through 2, which is also what we see at the communion table. Right? A, a family of, of Christians, a covenant community, coming together around the table to say, we believe the gospel together. We believe that Jesus died for us. We believe that his body was broken like bread. We believe that his blood was poured out like wine so that our sins can be forgiven, so that God's wrath can be satisfied, so that we can be reconciled to God. And now because we believe that together, we are going to live in light of it. We're going to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. We're not going to be conformed to the world. We're going to be transformed and live new lives for the glory of of God. That's what we're saying and resolving and committing together when we uh, eat and drink at the table together. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, and if you are a a member of the people of God, then this is our opportunity to remember the gospel together and to celebrate the gospel together. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in Christ um, to save you from your sin so that you can take communion with us next time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercy, and we pray that we could live in light of it. Lord, we pray that that we could give the entirety of who we are, all that we have to you as a sacrifice, as an act of worship. Lord, we pray that we would not be conformed to the world in its rebellion against you, Instead, we pray that we can be transformed and renewed by the grace of God so that we can walk with you and glorify you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.